Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Oh, just some locally grown vegetables from my local food co-op down the road. How are the food co-ops doing in Durham? Oh, yeah, the food co-ops here are really thriving. They're really big around the Triangle area thanks to this new slow money project that got started by Carol Hewitt, who is actually going to be on our show today. I hear that slow money is doing really well in North Carolina. Yeah, the slow money initiative is doing really, really well. And what it does is it makes it possible for people looking for loans to start a food project to actually get a loan without having to go through a bank, which is really fantastic. I remember you telling me about a year or so ago, you did one of those slow money loans. I actually was involved in a slow money loan. So that's a disclaimer for this interview. I, I have a personal connection to the interviewee. But yeah, people like me and you can get involved in the community and we can successfully lend cash to people and projects that we think are great. And it's, you know, it's really easy and the interest rates are low for the people getting the money. So, you know, I have a lot of food to eat, so we, we better get started. Oh, who else are we talking with on this episode, Justin? First off on our show today, we're going to be talking with Michael Schumann, the author of Local Dollars local sense how to shift your money from wall street to main street and achieve real prosperity and we're going to talk to michael about how the standard narrative around retirement actually even in non-tumultuous economic times even not facing the kind of systemic financial risks or banking system failure risks that we've talked about on previous shows just even in normal times where your investments could return five percent year over year which is actually more than they do in regular situation it's still actually a pathway to poverty for most people and so there's different ways of thinking about how to manage your money that actually can help to enable a more local and resilient economy. And that's what Michael is going to talk about with us today. And then after our discussion with Michael, we're going to be talking with Carol Hewitt in Durham. Yeah, we're going to be talking with Carol Hewitt, who wrote the book Financing Our Food Shed, and actually went over to her house to record the interview. Yeah, more than about anybody else, Carol has been taking the ideas and the philosophy of slow money and actually implementing that on a really impressive scale with all of the local food projects she's been funding there in North Carolina that are making a huge difference. So we're going to jump into our conversation with Michael Schumann. You're listening to The Action Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie, and this is episode number 77. I think the standard story is that if you squirrel away a modest amount of money each year, the magic of the market will allow you to retire with a handsome bundle of money. And one of the things that I do in my book, Local Dollars, Local Sense, in the very beginning is show 
that if someone was a really fabulous saver in the United States, squirreling away $5,000 a year, and the market performed as as we think it should, actually better than we think it should, growing at 5% per year, at that person's retirement at 65, a uh, person would have maybe three quarters of a million dollars in the bank. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but most retirement advisors suggest that you only draw three, four percent of that in any given year. And what that effectively means is that that really good saver is living just above the poverty line. And the truth is, is that most Americans don't have three quarters of a million dollars in the bank. In point of fact, the typical American who hits 65 right now has about 70,000 in the bank, which is enough to buy groceries with. So we have set up a whole generation of Americans to enter into poverty in their old age. And what makes, I think, this even worse is that the numbers I just gave you were based on a 5% rate of return of the marketplace. Of like the Dow Jones Industrial. That's right. And probably, I think, similar arguments are made with the Toronto Exchange, that if you put money in a diversified portfolio of Canadian stocks, that's what you will achieve. And in point of fact, the market doesn't come anywhere near those numbers. And so there's just a massive fraud that has been perpetrated on our publics. The uh, S&P 500, if you go back historically since 1879, in any given 12-month period, if you take out inflation, add in dividends, the typical rate of return has been 2.6%. And at that kind of return rate, it frankly doesn't make a lot of sense for people to go the extra mile and put money into any kinds of funds that are related to Fortune 500 or Toronto stock market-based securities, that it's much smarter for people to figure out other ways of putting their money into themselves, into their education, and into local businesses. Because if you shop around carefully, you can find a lot of local businesses that perform better than the stock market, and you have all the other benefits of a strong local economy that makes your community life worthwhile. And so what is it like when you tell people that, you know, this traditional story of retirement is leading them to poverty? How do people react? And then what are some of the alternative options that you give them? Well, the reactions that I get from people vary. I think when I first developed these ideas, I shared it with my family around Thanksgiving, which wasn't a very smart thing to do because (laughs) several of my family members were furious at me for spoiling spoiling the great family feelings of thanksgiving by by shattering this fairy tale but i think that the people who come to hear me speak or take workshops that i sometimes lead on local investment i think they are prepared to think more deeply about the problem and really i mean there's two ways that i think about this problem One way is 
what are ways that you can invest in yourself that will deliver a better rate of return than Wall Street? And then the second way is what are the ways that you can invest in other local businesses that will deliver the better rate of return? And on the first point of how you invest in yourself, I mean, one of the things that that's absolutely clear in the United States, given our, our various laws, it's a little cloudier in Canada, but putting money in your house and sort of building your own castle and paying off your mortgage faster, these are all better things to do with your money than to put it in Fortune 500 companies. Cutting up your credit cards and putting money in a low interest bank account so that you avoid credit cards, that you could call it your own bank, that makes more sense than putting your money into a stock fund. Even when you're talking about so-called wasting assets, and by wasting assets, I mean if you put, say, $1,000 into energy efficiency in your home, you're not going to be sure that this is going to increase the value of your home by $1,000. So really, a smart person will pick some number of years in which that investment has to not only pay for itself, but pay some rate of return. So what I look at in local dollars, local cents is, let's pick a 10-year lifetime for these kinds of alternative investments. And it turns out when you work out the math on this, that if you compare, say, a robust Wall Street rate of return of 5% with things you could do with that $1,000 in your own control, but you have to pay for it and get the same rate of return over 10 years, you need something like a 16% rate of return. So the question is, can you get with $1,000, $160 a year in energy savings over 10 years from energy efficiency? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, we probably have tens of billions of dollars of energy savings that are available in our countries that with typical rates of return of closer to 20% per year. You could justify putting that money into a bicycle if you brought down your gas bill by $160 a year. In the United States, you probably could do that in a week now. You could justify putting $1,000 into a really good coffee maker if you could avoid one Starbucks coffee a week, you could justify putting $1,000 into your own education. And this is what Warren Buffett urges people to do, thinks it's the best investment, if you increase your income $160 a year. So there are so many alternatives. And the problem is, is that we tend to think of our lifestyle choices in one compartment and our investment choices in another compartment. And in point of fact, it all comes back down to our own pocketbook. And making smart choices that are within our own control and build our own wealth ultimately inure not only to our own benefit, but to the benefit of our community. 
And so you mentioned how we often have these lifestyle choices like going and recycling and, you know, going out of my way to maybe ride my bike when it would be faster or easier perhaps to drive a car somewhere. But because I share values of sustainability and care about the environment, I'm willing to go that extra step. But yet a lot of people who would classify themselves in that category put their money into the same big banks, you know, that were responsible for all the financial fraud and 2008 financial collapse and all the same systemic problems that maybe I having those values would criticize. Why do you think there is that disconnect between those actions we take in our own lives and then the actions we'd actually take with our retirement savings? I think there's there's a couple of explanations. Probably the biggest explanation is that we have made it in not just the United States, but Canada, Australia, much of Europe, we've made it unbelievably expensive and difficult for small local businesses to take any money from the 99% of people in our country who are unaccredited, that is not wealthy individuals. And you have to kind of go back historically to the Great Depression And that's when we created a system that I think you could fairly call one of investor or an investment apartheid. And if you're in the upper 1% of wealth, you're allowed to invest your money in anything, anytime, anywhere, no questions asked. So these are like the private equity firms that... That's right. Or you could just invest individually without going through an investment advisor. You just are presumed to know what you're doing and it's safe. The presumption for the other 99% is that you don't know what you're doing and therefore only if a company goes through an exhaustive disclosure process will you be protected. Superficially, it's not a bad idea to do that, to bring in some kinds of protections for investors. But in point of fact, to me, it is really unfair and it's stupid, stupid kind of principle on which we've built a whole system of laws. And one thing that I point out to audiences is, in all of, in the United States and Canada, you can walk into a casino almost anywhere in the country. And when you walk in, do they stop you at the door and say, can you prove to me that you're an accredited gambler before you play? And No, that question never comes up, so you're allowed to come in. Before you sit down at the table and play blackjack, do they say, listen, will you read this thick disclosure statement and all the risks of playing blackjack and what the odds are? Because we don't want you risking anything unless you're fully informed and sign your name. Well, that never happens either. So we have two systems of risk management in in both of our countries. One system of risk management called gambling, where you can lose everything for nothing and probably will, and you play independent of your income. You can lose it all. And we have another system called investing in your community, investing in local small business and creating jobs and creating well-being. And we say, sorry, unless you pay off an attorney fifty dollars to $100,000 for a disclosure statement that most human beings have never been observed to read, you can't play. To me, that is an utterly unjustifiable kind of distinction in the law. And it's that basic distinction that has led to a mountain of securities laws and regulations. 
And, you know, and I'm happy to report that in the United States last year, we made significant progress in beginning to dismantle those laws. And it was an interesting coalition of Tea Party Republicans, local economy people like myself, and young techie people who wanted to get easier finance for their iPhone apps. And that coalition actually convinced Congress to create a new category for small companies to get money through what's known commonly as crowdfunding. And so sometime by the end of this year or early next year, a new generation of websites will pop up where Americans can invest as much as $2,000 per year per company with very limited questions asked. And to me, that is the beginning of the end of Wall Street's monopoly on the securities universe. So this is more than just Kickstarter, where you're actually getting a return on your investment. Yes. So the word crowdfunding is a little bit confusing because there's many different models out there. So Kickstarter, Indiegogo are places where you can donate money to a project or a business that looks interesting. And you don't get, not only do you not get any rate of return, you often get nothing. Maybe you'll get a token t-shirt, but the token is not regarded as a return on investment. There's another model in the United States called Kiva. Kiva allows Americans to put small loans into micro-entrepreneurs, mostly in the global south, but sometimes in inner cities in the United States. And because you don't get interest on those loans, you just get your principal paid back, in the United States, that also is not regarded as a security. So that's permissible. We have websites like Prosper and the Lending Club, which do pay interest to people who do peer lending via these internet sites. They are securities, and they have had to spend millions of dollars each site in order to create the system. But now these sites are available, and people can do peer lending using these sites in a way that they weren't able to before. But when these crowdfunding laws come into effect later this year, it will be possible for people to invest in actual shares of companies, perhaps to have a, a royalty relationship, and even to give loans to small businesses in more ways than you can do now with, say, Prosper, the lending club. So I'm wondering what a community-based economic approach to our modern economic stagnation and unemployment and underemployment problems would look like that also incorporate the knowledge of peak oil and climate change. Right. Well, I think that the localization almost by definition is probably the most appropriate response to peak oil and climate change. And the reason for it is pretty simple, that locally owned businesses, and ownership is a key facet here, because a lot of times when we talk about local businesses, people think you're talking about, oh, farm to table, those links are very short, and therefore, if Walmart is selling local food, that's localization. No, local means that 
the businesses are owned and controlled locally along the entire value chain of production. The reason why that matters is that we know that locally owned businesses spend more of their money locally and they buy more of their inputs locally. So the inputs into local businesses travel less. And the outputs of local businesses, because their markets are primarily local, travel less too. So those two features of less travel going into the business, less travel coming out, means less energy use, and in the end, a lower carbon footprint. And while one can cherry pick exceptions to that, the truth is, is that the more that we create self-reliant local economies, the better the planet will be served in terms of these very real dangers of climate change and, and peak oil. Look at gold, for example, why people own gold. I don't know. Farmland, interestingly, will benefit from the same things that, that gold will benefit from. If there's inflation, farmland will benefit. If there's a decline in fiat currencies, particularly the US dollar, farmland will benefit ag prices or are, are, are denominated in dollars. So if the dollar drops by 50% versus the you know, one, for example, in Korea, they can buy twice as much or, or, or their economy can benefit by not having to spend as much for the same amount of food. Well, farmland is, it represents very good historical value per ounce of gold today. And farmland would be a great place to park your money uh, for the long term. And uh, equity investors, most of their return over the last decades has really come from the dividend yield. Farmland has a dividend yield that gold just doesn't. And uh, that's an important piece of the overall picture that investors need to keep in mind. The world has consumed more than it's produced for the last 10 years, so agricultural inventories are near historic lows now. But the problem is much worse than that uh, around the world. We're running out of farmers. Farming has been in a horrible business for 30 years. Therefore, few people have gone into farming. The average age of farmers in America is 58. In Korea, it's 65. In Japan, it's 66. In Australia, it's 58. In Canada, it's the oldest in recorded history. Very few people have gone into farming. Today, Japanese agriculture is at a crossroads. Japan's farmers, like 71-year-old Yuki Norimori and his wife Fukiko, are getting old. And their children and grandchildren are leaving the farms for higher paying jobs in the cities. My eldest son is self-employed, and my younger one is working in America. 
so they don't really need to take over the family farm. But the bottom line is that if they don't continue on, this household and the farm will be over. Many industrialized countries are losing farmers to old age, but the problem's especially serious here in Japan, where less than 12% of the land is suitable for farming. And as Japan's countryside empties out, there are signs of a growing counter-movement. 33-year-old Yusuke Miyagi divides his time between urban Tokyo and his family pig farm. When I was a student, I thought I would be anything but a farmer. I wanted to start a cool business and live in Roppongi Hills in Tokyo and have a Ferrari. That was my dream. Then Miyagi saw what was happening to older farmers, like his father, and had an idea of how he could help. He formed a network of young Japanese farmers called Kosagari, or Farmer's Sons Network, and launched a video marketing campaign to appeal to Japanese youth. Once I looked at it a different way, thinking if we can integrate the entire supply chain into one business model, from food production all the way to the customer's table, the image young people have of farming would change. Though farming is a traditional industry, it can also be a cool, meaningful, and even profitable business. Listen, when all the farmers are driving Lamborghinis, the image will change, I assure you. All the young people will say, look at all those Lamborghinis, the farmers are driving those Lamborghinis. See all those stockbrokers driving taxis? I don't want to be a stockbroker, I want to be a farmer. Then the image will start to change. The harvest fields of western Ukraine. Now, once again, forces from far beyond these fields are bearing down. The world is getting hungrier. The old wheat basket of Eastern Europe offering new opportunity. You could call it the latest foreign invasion. No tanks this time, but a state-of-the-art agricultural army on the move. The productive potential of this land unlocked 21st century style. The Libyans are negotiating for land here, the Russians too. But the combine harvesters down there belong to a British company, which is taking over vast swathes of Ukraine. This year, Landcom will harvest 60,000 tons of wheat from Ukrainian landholdings, totaling some 100 square miles. And all of this just two and a half years after the company started. Two years ago, this field would have been grass and weed, probably up to my waist. And this year, it's producing four to five tons of wheat, which is double the national average of Ukraine. Young people in America, the more they study, more of them study public relations than study agriculture. So the old guys are dying and retiring. No young people are coming in. So unless the price of agricultural goods goes up a lot, we're not going to have any farmers at any price. The crisis in Ukraine is already having an impact on commodity markets because the Black Sea ports are vital for both wheat and oil exports. We've seen quite a few of the uh, major commodities being uh, priced higher uh, first thing this morning. We, especially wheat is currently up more than 4%. The world's going to have a crisis sometime in the next few years because we don't have enough farmers. Listening to episode number 77 of the Extra Environmentalists. Today we're talking with Michael Schumann about his new book, Local Dollars, Local Sense.
So I was talking to my friend Tom the other day, and he was at the School of Community and Regional Planning Conference here in Vancouver, and they had a really great presentation about retrofitting suburbia and figuring out all of these different ways that we can take the mess that suburbia is now and change it into something meaningful. But he said to me, he was like, Justin, you know, architects stream up all these really cool ideas, but we've got tons of cool ideas for architecture. What we really need to find are ways to fund these kinds of projects. How do you see some of these investment models kind of getting off the ground that we can fund some retrofitting suburbia and changing our built environment into something that actually matches our future challenges? Well, I think energy efficiency is a really good example of something that if we had investment capital to put into it, there's no question that we would put tens or hundreds of billions of dollars into it immediately because there are savings, but that capital is not available. And the truth is, is that local businesses generally are becoming more competitive and they're becoming more competitive for a bunch of reasons. They're becoming more competitive because small business people are learning a lot of new strategies for mounting successful businesses. They are becoming more competitive because services are inherently local. We like to buy our services from people that we know and trust, and a growing percentage of our consumption in all advanced OECD countries is becoming services. Back in 1960, about one-third of what we spend our money on is service. Now it's two-thirds, and that number is growing. So that opens the door for more and more localization. When you look at products, goods, three-quarters of what we spend our money on are not things like cars or electronics, very advanced kinds of products. Most of what we spend our money on in products are things like food and paper goods and building materials. And these products are generally called non-durable goods because we just consume them all the time. And the the interesting characteristic of non-durable goods is that they generally have high weight and low value per unit weight. Well, if you think about it, as the price of oil rises, these are exactly the kinds of things that are going to be ridiculous to try to import from China. I mean, sure, we may always be importing, say, fine French wine or spices, but for most foodstuffs, when oil hits $200 or $500 a barrel, it's not going to make sense to import these things outside the region. So, I see that trend also as making local businesses increasingly competitive. So given that, what holds back a dramatic expansion of local business is the absence of local capital to support them. And the truth is is that most small entrepreneurs, most business people, The principal source of finance is retained earnings, their credit cards, or the famous three Fs, friends, family, and fools. And we have to provide a lot more options. Banks are not going to do it because banks are very conservative animals. And so that's why crowdfunding is so important because it begins to provide a practical way 
for many people in the community to come together and pool together finance that can support this new generation of expanded local businesses. Now, crowdfunding is really cool. I have a lot of friends who've done different crowdfunding projects, but I'm thinking of like my parents, for example, and they're uh, in their 50s and or maybe someone with even younger parents saving for retirement, going about it in the system the way you described it, that's leading towards for most people poverty, even if even more severe things don't happen in the global economy, it's still headed in that direction. How do you think we could design some kind of investment vehicle for local businesses that could convince maybe even more financially conservative parents to put their money into it? Well, local investment is an ecosystem. And it's an ecosystem that has to evolve, I believe, in a certain order. So the first step is we have to make it easier and cheaper for small businesses to create securities that unaccredited investors can put money into. The second step is we have to create a exchange, could be just a virtual stock exchange, so that people can buy and sell these shares in their community, and these markets have what we call liquidity. The third evolutionary step is then for investment funds to pool together these securities and create diversified portfolios that bring down the risk of people investing in them. And if we could pause on that one for just a second, in both Canada and the United States, the securities laws around investment funds are even more onerous than those around the creation and selling of securities of stock. So this is another area of reform that we haven't yet embarked upon in the United States, but needs to happen to make it easier and cheaper for unaccredited investors to pool money together and invest as a community. Once that happens, and there's a track record of investment funds or mutual funds that are investing in local business, it will be possible to start convincing pension fund managers to start shifting some of their investment. Now, I mean, just to kind of review, you really can't do this in another order. That is, it doesn't make sense to create a local stock market unless you have local stock. It doesn't make sense to create an investment fund unless you have like a local stock market to have liquidity in the marketplace. And you can't begin to convince pension funds that they will meet their fiduciary responsibilities for taking care of people's money until there is actually a good track record of pools of capital investing in local business. So what I see is right now, we are at that very first step. We are making it cheaper and easier for people to issue stock. And over the next year or two, we will see the emergence of some local stock markets. But I think it's going to take considerably longer for the next two pieces to be filled in. So in the meantime, I guess my advice to anyone who says, gee, well, how can I invest my pension fund in local businesses. Well, what you can do in the United States is roll over things from your 401k or your IRA into what's called a self-directed IRA. And in Canada, 
I'm going to get these initials wrong. It's the RRSP. Right. So you can roll over money from a institutionally managed RRSP into a self-managed one. And when you do that, you have the freedom to start putting that money in all kinds of available local businesses. And interestingly, the only limitation in both of our countries, these laws are similar. The only limitation on self-directed IRA and self-directed RRSP is you can't put money in your own house or your own business. But interestingly, you can put money in your neighbor's house and your neighbor can put money in your house. And therein lies an interesting exploration of a way that neighbors can work together and finance one another. One of the things that people are starting to realize is that some of the fundamental aspects of the economic game are changing. And now the models and the ideas of the past are starting to look less and less viable. Do you see opportunities for embracing that change and building relationships with these local investing ideas? Yeah. I think one change is is that people are looking for a return of relationships in their economic transactions. I think this obsession with market efficiency had certain virtues associated with it, but it was soul deadening. And that era where consumers don't know who they're buying from, and the businesses don't really know their suppliers, and the the managers don't really know their workforce, I think that era is coming to a close. And so local investing is really building on this growing movement of consumers and businesses and policymakers that wants to rehumanize our economic relationships. And frankly, to return to the question of crowdfunding again, most crowdfunding that has been legalized in the United States will, I predict, will be a terrible bust because most crowdfunding will be small companies using websites to reach across the United States to strangers and have them pony up money. And in that, there is an enormous potential for fraud and abuse. The antidote is to encourage people educate people to focus on local investments only because a local company is one you can ground truth. You can inspect the products, experience the services, talk with the manager, kibitz with the workforce, really get a sense of the integrity of that company. And that's the kind of company that people should be investing in locally. So are there examples of these local investment networks right now that we can draw on? There are. So I I wrote about a bunch of them, and they're expanding dramatically. But one fun example is in Port Townsend, Washington, which is about two hours north of Seattle. And Port Townsend is a town of about 10,000 people. And there's a hedge fund manager in New York named James Fraser, who after making a lot of money in New York, felt bad about what he did. He returned to Port Townsend and decided to set up what he called LION, the Local Investment Opportunities Network. The thing that's interesting about LION is that it's a response to another peculiar feature of securities laws. In both the United States and Canada, 
until the crowdfunding reforms. Now, the crowdfunding reforms change this, but until the crowdfunding reforms, even if you did your disclosure documents, you could only approach people you knew, people you had pre-existing relationships with. You could not approach strangers unless you kind of hit a disclosure document threshold that made it a public offering, which is even more expensive. So what Fraser did is he, he had a monthly party. And you bring businesses, you bring investors to the party, ply them with food and alcohol. And at the end of the party, you pass around a list and says, okay, who do you now have a pre-existing relationship with? And then based on that, Fraser would start circulating business plans. In this 10,000-person town, just this one social innovation has brought about a million dollars a year of new investment into local small business. Now, my feeling is is that this is great, but it, it also is it may be a little bit inefficient to just do all this stuff person to person, and we may want to do more of these community relationship building things online. So a company that I'm working closely with now called Mission Markets is creating community portals, which basically are online spaces that comply with all the securities regulations that facilitate all kinds of crowdfunding. So right now, what you can do is the traditional funding of mostly accredited investors investing in small businesses locally or the donation kind of investment that Kickstarter is doing. But at the end of this year, that community portal space will be expanded to include lending, royalty finance, and equity finance. And I think creating places where you're building up a critical mass of local investors and building up a critical mass of concerned local businesses really is how we're going to shift communities at a larger scale than you can do with just these sort of informal lion networks. One of the interesting things in your book that was really fascinating to me was how the Mennonites manage credit and investment and also Rudolf Steiner fund as well. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so it turns out in this universe of investment funds, as I mentioned, securities laws have made it really expensive and difficult for an investment fund to take unaccredited investors. But there are ways that you can do it. And probably the first the first company, the first organization to really uh, try to get unaccredited investors into a big national fund that then made loans to targeted kinds of businesses was the Rudolf Steiner Foundation. And their social finance uh, operation, which started, I think it started probably in the 1970s. And they, as a matter of principle, they wanted unaccredited investors to be involved. And, and initially, Rudolf Steiner was was just trying to get money for Waldorf schools, for the building and expansion of Waldorf schools. But then about oh, 10 years ago, 
the fund started to get involved in other kinds of mission-oriented businesses. So businesses around food, around sustainability, around the arts and culture. And I think at this point, every single year, the Rudolf Steiner Foundation will go to something like 40 states in the United States and file these expensive disclosure documents that will allow them to sell their notes in those 40 states. So that's that's one example. Another example is when you look at mutual funds. Mutual funds are vehicles that unaccredited Americans can invest in. They're very highly regulated. It probably costs about half a million dollars in legal fees to create a mutual fund. So it's not the first thing that a community thinks of doing. There are 7,500 mutual funds in the United States, and not a single one invests in local small business. And it's not because it's illegal. It's just because they haven't had the the interest or commitment in doing that, or, or I, you could even say the imagination to do that. But what we have seen is a little bit of innovation in some of the mutual funds that show how they can invest in in some creative kinds of securities. And probably the best example is the Everance Fund run by some Mennonites. And I mean, we have a lot of mutual funds that screen securities on the basis of social responsibility. And they just take that much, much farther and have a very limited range of businesses that meet a lot of socially responsible screens. Now, they're still not doing local business, but I think they're interested in figuring out how to do that. Calvert Social Finance is another company that is interested in creating a more localized mutual fund. So those are the two companies that I would look to being the first of that universe of 7,500 funds that actually do invest in local business. So let's say I'm a student and I've just finished up my my undergrad somewhere at a school in North America and I'm facing, you know, high competition for limited job opportunities or, you know, a service job somewhere, but I'm really passionate about local agriculture or trying to learn about that. How could I try and get some kind of project funded for local agriculture? Well, I think there are difficult ways and easy ways of doing it. I think the difficult way is to just kind of build a one-off network of people who support your business. And and that's like Lion, build a Lion network. Another example that's interesting is in Boston, Equal Exchange entered a relationship with its local bank and basically convinced the bank to create a certificate of deposit, the proceeds of which are used to finance equal exchange. Well, in principle, any business could set up that kind of relationship with a bank, and that might be a way of doing it. But if you start thinking through that most small businesses have a hard enough time making ends meet with their own business plan, and the fact that they have to now do a new business plan on top of it to raise capital that's asking a little much of them. So I think it's much smarter for a 
community of many businesses to work together to create a mechanism like a community portal that facilitates these relationships on an ongoing basis. And so I I think that certainly a, a city like Vancouver ought to have some kind of community portal. And if you think about it, even if you did nothing more than just create a list of all available local investment opportunities and made it easier and cheaper for people to create self-directed RRSPs, that would be a home run because just those two things would facilitate the shift of millions of dollars a year going to local business in the area. Mm-hmm. So I have friends and, and many other acquaintances who are going and getting an MBA or go, going about the process of thinking about an MBA, what advice would you have to them about approaching that aspect of their education? Well, I would say if you haven't chosen your business school yet, think very carefully about the small but growing number of business schools that have a focus on smaller businesses or entrepreneurship or sustainability. In the United States, this would be, for example, Bainbridge Graduate Institute or uh, the Presidio School of Management in San Francisco. But I would say that the good news is, is that as we reinvent investment mechanisms, the investment industry at the local level, it's going to look a lot different than what we see now in Wall Street. But that difference also invites creativity and it invites entrepreneurship. I mean, for example, I just, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have any entrepreneurs who created a local mutual fund yet in the United States. So if I was someone in business school, I would think, gee, I'm going to be the first one to create a local mutual fund. And that'll be exciting, it's motivating, and if it succeeds, it will be incredibly profitable. We're going to need to create local equivalents of Standard & Poor's and Moody's to rate securities, and the whole process of vetting small businesses is going to look really different than what we do for larger businesses. We're going to need new kinds of industries that, say, create bonds for municipalities and then figure out creative ways to use that bond finance for local businesses. So there's a lot of puzzles out there that I think people can creatively solve. Mm -hmm. A big issue right now is carbon divestment that's coming along. 350.org is leading a big campaign and they're putting more and more pressure and more students are putting pressure on their universities to divest from the fossil fuel industry. What do you think are some creative options for university endowment managers to look at if they're thinking about screening these fossil fuel companies? Well, so if I was a university manager, the first thing that I would look at is how could I use some of my investment portfolio to improve the energy efficiency of the school and the surrounding community. So I would think about direct investment. I would also think about how I might create a community portal for mission markets and then have students run it. So students would vet the businesses that were listed on there and students would students and alums would help to mobilize 
investors to come in. So this kind of invites improvement of town-gown relations, which is a problem for many universities. And then finally, yeah, I, I think avoiding companies with, with big carbon footprints is a great thing to do. But trying to get universities to put more of their money into local businesses that are inherently low carbon because they are local would be a great thing for universities to do. I mean, we do know, if we go back to the 1980s, when there was a move afoot to divest funds from firms doing business in South Africa, and this, you know, set in motion a movement across the world that I think ultimately helped to dislodge apartheid in South Africa. But that divestment movement began in municipalities and universities. And so I think it's good to kind of look at the history for inspiration on how and why this can succeed. Now, just two last questions for you. My co-host, Seth, you wanted to get your thoughts on slow money and slow money investing and also incorporating a bit of that challenge of investor expectation of return. Yes. Okay. So slow money is a brainchild of Woody Tash, and Woody Tash has been a great investment pioneer in the United States for many years. And I think Woody organized a group of progressive investors called Investment or Investor Circle. And he would periodically bring in speakers. And one speaker who really inspired him and other investors there was Carlo Petrini, who is the inventor of the slow food movement. And I think that got Woody's wheels turning that the principles of slow food ought to be integrated into the thinking about how our money moves. And, you know, the principles of slow food are that quality is more important than quantity. And part of the quality of of slow food is the relationships that one builds around that. So we should look for quality local investments and build relationships around those investments. So Woody wrote a book, great book called Slow Money. And a movement built on top of it. So there are now networks of slow money aficionados around the country who are each developing different kinds of tools facilitating local investment. In Boulder County in Colorado, a group there created a $2 million revolving loan fund to support local businesses. In Maine, there is an investment club called No Small Potatoes. 20 people each chip in five to $10,000 and they make loans to farmers and small food businesses. In North Carolina, there's a terrific woman named uh, Carol Pepe Hewitt, and she has mobilized you know, hundreds of investors throughout North Carolina to do pure lending to promising local food businesses throughout the state. These are all experiments. They're pushing on the edge of the law, but these are, I think, what the local investment movement is is building on. And, and it's quite an exciting time of 
innovation right now. And like all innovation, some will work, some will fail, but those that work, when they become institutionalized as successful local businesses run by these mindful graduates of of business schools, socially responsible business schools, then the ship will have come in. One observation I have is that in the United States, if our financial markets were working effectively, we would transfer $15 trillion from Wall Street to Main Street. What happens when the first trillion dollars shifts? Well, I think what's, what we're going to see is that there's going to be less demand for Wall Street securities and their prices are going to get lower. And there's going to be more demand for Main Street securities and their prices are going to get higher. And many investment advisors will look at this and say, huh, smart money is moving to Main Street. Maybe we need to start doing that too. So this shift could actually happen quite quickly once we get all of these innovations in place. So as a last question, kind of talking about how to envision like 50 years out, let's say we can make this shift. What what would our communities look like? People like Max Kaiser say we're in the era of Ponzi finance and global financial terrorism and fraud. And we're hard on the global financial system on our show and a lot of the guests that we have on as well. What do you think our system could look like in 50 years if we move past this current system and really develop a sane local economic system? How would our banks operate? How would our uh, communities look? Right. I think the best design principle uh, for a future economy is like nature. We want self-reliance in small areas, but we want redundancy. So self-reliance and redundancy means perhaps that we're investing half of our money in our own local businesses and half of our money in portfolios of local businesses throughout the world. So I don't see necessarily an end to globalization, but a redefinition of globalization. And our mission as a community, as a prospering, self-reliant community, is to help other communities worldwide to achieve the same level of self-reliance and prosperity that we have achieved for ourselves. And therein, I think, lies a great long-term project. Because a world of self-reliant communities, as Switzerland learned 500 years ago, is a world that doesn't go to war. It's a world that has greater degrees of justice. It's a greater harmony with the environment. And it allows for democratic participation to achieve that self-reliance. My vision is is that this kind of world of self-reliance becomes a new way that people relate worldwide to other people, other businesses, other causes, other movements. And that the nation-state system that is so rigidly constructed now around obsolete trade treaties begins to give way to this more nuanced relationship among localities worldwide.
You are listening to episode number 77 of The Extra Environmentalist. And next up, we are speaking with Carol Hewitt on her book, Financing Our Food Shed, Growing Local Food with Slow Money. First of all, the phrase slow money is an idea, if you will. It's coined by a man named Woody Tash, and he wrote a book called Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money that came out in 2008. And if you go to the Slow Money website, you're going to find a national movement and um, links to various groups around the country that are getting started with this, to take this idea further. And so I would say it starts out an idea and becomes a movement. The idea, Woody's idea, he, he's been in the financing world, and he also cares deeply about the planet. And he had this idea that we ought to care more, that we ought to take some of our money, and we should put it where our mouth is. We should take some of our available funds, a little bit of our portfolio, whatever people are comfortable with, and we should use it to finance our sustainable farms, food businesses that build more soil fertility, that protect the planet, protect the soil. So that was his basic idea, and he's a real visionary. He's a real thought leader in that way. And I had a chance to hear him speak in 2010 when he came to the little town of Pittsburgh in North Carolina where I live. It's just a rural town in the Triangle, not far from Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Durham. People that know that North Carolina were in the center, sort of halfway from the coast to the ocean. And we actually are a good farming area There's for years. You know, there was tobacco and cotton and other things grown here. But now, a lot of that has become diversified, and we are one of the few places probably in the country where the number of small farms is actually on the rise. So I was already very interested in that and part of the local food movement. I was already a local food junkie trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do this? How do we produce more food? How do we help farmers? Other than just shopping and buying as much local food as I could eat, I didn't really have very many answers. So I was excited when I heard Woody talk, and knowing what I do about small business, I run a small business with my husband, and I've helped and coached other small businesses over the years. I know that access to capital is a really key piece of the puzzle. So I took Woody's idea to heart, and I made my first loan to a small restaurant, a restaurant that was just getting started. A lovely Greek woman named Angelina was going to start a, a small restaurant, and she was buying as much food as she possibly could from local farmers. She just was doing that because, to her, that's how you made great food. And she didn't have a lot of resources, uh, financial resources, to get started. So she had put some of her build out on credit card debt. And a friend of mine and I each loaned her $3,000. That's just a couple percent. And that credit card debt was at 18%. So you can imagine... She probably would have been paying off interest forever, interest only. And now here it is a couple of years later, and that loan's completely paid off. So I got hooked. So you took her debt from the credit card company and made it your own. I made a small, personal, direct peer-to-peer -peer loan to her using a simple promissory note. Wrote her a check. She sent me payments once a month for the next couple of years. And it was over. It was so much fun. I actually went tonight and picked up shepherd's pie for supper from her. And I know when I walk in that restaurant, we get a big hug and a big smile. And I know that that restaurant is there partly because 
we made sure that she was able to survive. I wonder sometimes how many small businesses, farmers and food businesses in particular, go out of business but for $5,000, for a little bit of help during a season when they just can't make a go of it. So anyway, that was the beginning, and um, I kind of, as you know, got carried away and have done lots more facilitating of these loans ever since. So could you talk about how you took that next step from making that first loan and then how did the second one come about and the third one and so on? Sure. Well, when Woody was speaking, he had said that there was a a lot of money had changed hands in the name of slow money. There have been these national gatherings over the last few years and people would come to them and they would hear entrepreneurs present their ideas and they would they would get involved, but primarily in terms of equity. When I heard him speak, I thought to myself, let's do little ones. How, how about if we just did lots of little loans? That was sort of in my, more in my snack bracket. What I could comprehend was freeing up $2,000, not sending money off to Wall Street that year, not sending money off to my 401k, but instead keeping it and loaning it to people in my local community. I guess the next step really was we threw together a little website because we wanted to figure out how would we find borrowers and how would we find lenders and how could we let them know we existed. The website doesn't match people up. You can't go to the website and and borrow or make a loan. You can only contact us, contact me, and then once we build a personal relationship, I can then introduce you to friends that might also want to become your friend and make a loan. So it's very important that these loans are happening between friends and family. They're not between strangers. They're within the same food shed. So if you live in Asheville, North Carolina, it's going to be somebody in Asheville that you would make a loan to. So the website was one way to do that. I mean, I just, I guess I'm kind of a born networker. You know, if there's two people in a room that don't know each other, they won't be strangers for long if I'm around because I can't help myself. It's just what I do. I don't even know I'm doing it. So that basically is what I've done with this project. And I've now facilitated about 115 loans. Wow. To 55 different farms and food projects. And we're upwards, close, getting close to $2 million. Wow. Could you talk to me a little bit about how doing what, what this kind of micro loan how it's different than in a banking setting. What's the difference there? It's a huge difference. And, and, and really this brings us to the, the heart of this discussion, which is, which is money. And what, what about the power of money? Where is our money? You know, we've got the money in our wallets, right? And when we pull our wallet out and we hand a $10 bill across to somebody, we see that money. We know where that money is going. We get something back for it, service or product. But At least 50% of the people in the United States have savings. Probably 25% of them have assets and lots of savings, and some of those have a large amount of money stored somewhere. It's not just sitting there. That's, I think, what's interesting for us to all notice. That money is doing something. It's active. It's very powerful. So each one of us that has any money stored anywhere other than, say, under our beds, that money's busy. Is it doing good? Is it doing harm? Do we know? Do we care? Do we ask? These are tough questions, and um, I have to say that I bring these questions up at dinner parties and places where I go, and people will often back away. I mean, they, they don't want to talk about this. Yeah, these are tough questions. These are tough questions. It's terrifying. We have fallen for a huge fear factor around money and security 
that could be a complete fallacy. I mean, what is real security? So when I go into town today and Angelina's is open, probably if I was really struggling, I suspect she'd have given me the shepherd's pie. So, you know, which is real security, that I have that relationship or that I have the $8 with me to buy it? If we build community, small farms, close relationships, lots of them, we will move more and more into community economy, barter economy, gift economy. And to me, there's a level of security in that that my stocks out on Wall Street don't offer me. How do people typically react when you bring this up to them and you say, you were talking about the cocktail party scenario or dinner party scenario where you're talking about what your money's doing out in the world, where does it come from and where is it going? That's a really subversive question for a lot of people. And like you said, you you see people kind of back away when you start asking it because it's, it's a really deep and sometimes uncomfortable question. And so when you make that first step to start saying, well, why don't you take your money that maybe otherwise you'd put in a 401k or in you know, a stock on, on Wall Street and put it into a local food business or a local farm, how do you breach that first step? Well, it's interesting. You know, Albert Bates has a comment, an interview I read recently, who started something called The Farm Out in Tennessee. And he, he ends his essay by saying, go find the others find the others that are like you. So what ends up happening, of course, is those that back away, back away and go along with their lives and do whatever it is they're going to do. But what, what I find is that much like what's happening on your show, the people that are finding your show are looking for the others like them. And so many of, many of the people that, that I come into contact with because of the, I'm on panels and I speak at conferences and I out in the, I'm out in the public a lot now, kind of carrying this cause, moving this movement forward. People come to hear me and meet me because the words slow money resonate with them. So that's basically what happens. You end up attracting the very people that need this message. And also, they've been looking for it. They've been wanting to know, what can I do? You know, I have a, a dear friend recently approached me and rather distraught because she's just inherited some money. And she's looked at it. It matches her values in no way at all. In other words, all of the things that her mom had invested in. And her mother was a deeply good person. She just had no idea probably where her investments were. They were in big oil. They were in large corporations, Coca-Cola, whatever they are. And for my friend, that's not where she wanted them. So she sold it all. And she's little by little by little finding places to lend and to, and to invest in that, that make sense for her, that match her values. I have to share with you something from the book because a lovely woman named Ginger, who I'm sad to say has recently passed away, died of cancer, she said something which I love. And I'll read it from the book. It says, this comment from Ginger makes me laugh out loud. And the question is exactly that. I've asked in the book, what are the reactions you get from other people? And Ginger says, most people think it's a great idea. A few shake their heads. But in general, we don't tell people who shake their heads. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that was, that was perfect. Uh, Giles Blunden is, is an architect in Chapel Hill, and that was his wife, Ginger. I guess maybe that's the answer. I try not to tell people that are going to shake their heads. Yeah, the people that look at your ideas and say, why would you decide to invest in somebody that's a super high risk? Why would you ever think about doing that? They don't really realize that the risk that they're taking in a local community is, might even be smaller than the risk they're taking in a big oil, in a super economized world that we live in. You know, We've had so much 
unrest in Europe and a lot of the mutual funds and things we invest in are linked to that global system. And so that risk might even be larger in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, we really, we really have no idea. Many of us are looking for meaning, meaning in our portfolios, meaning in our lives, more connections, closer community, better community, and making a small peer-to-peer slow money loan offers you all of those opportunities. I wanted to ask you about how the facilitation process goes when somebody is starting their food business or needs to, say, upgrade certain things on their farm. Do they post a message on a bulletin board? Do they call you? Have you just developed the reputation of being the person you talk to when when you need those things and then you go out and you find people who are willing to loan the money? Kind of, yes, and I use the title matchmaker for myself. I sometimes jokingly say I'm the slow money escort service. But unfortunately or fortunately, I can't keep track of everybody, so the numbers are just too high. We have about 80 lenders now, and I get emails all the time, people that want to become a lender. They've heard about this. They want to do this. So I have a little form. There's a website, which is Slow Money NC. You need to put the NC for North Carolina in there. It'll take you somewhere else. So slowmoneync.org. And we can link to that in our show notes as well. Yeah, .org or .com. And there's something called a borrower information form. So it's in no way an application. I'm not a bank. It just asks, who are you? What is it you want to do? What, you know, what's your passion? What's your idea? Do you have any other loans? How much do you need? When do you need it? How'd you hear about slow money? And so I read through that. I give them a call. I get familiar with them. I make sure that, that it's a viable project, that it's really ready for money. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they're just wanting to get in touch and they're still thinking about it. I might send them to the Small Business Center for technical assistance to help with a business plan. Whatever I can do to help them get ready to the point that a potential lender like myself would actually want to take a look at this and take that seriously. And then I can do a couple things. One is just phone up someone that I think is interested in the very kind of product that they're offering and then have the two of them meet for coffee. We might all just meet or we might meet out at the farm or meet at the restaurant. Or every so often, and this is being done all around the country now in certain places, we'll have a slow money gathering. We did one of these in January and seven different passionate entrepreneurs, farmers or food entrepreneurs presented, they had four minutes each and they basically just told their story. They didn't pitch, they didn't ask for money specifically, they didn't say how much money they needed. It was just an informational session. But anyone that liked their idea, Marty Hanks is a beekeeper. He's adding 50 new hives and he's doing sort of local honey. So if he's in a neighborhood, that honey will have the name of that neighborhood on it. And he's got a wonderful idea. So that was one of them. Another one is a, is a cookie maker. Somebody else has a, has a sauce. Another person is gonna collect food waste and get a composting business going. So they each had about four minutes and anybody that was interested afterwards could approach them personally ask them more, get more information, ask them how much they needed, see if it was something that they felt they wanted to do. Often these loans are, generally they, they run about $5,000, $5,000, but often people will need more than that. They might need 30 or they might need 50 and it might take four or five different lenders to get to that number. So somebody might do three fifteens or five tens or kind of sounds crazy, And that is kind of one of the ways that I facilitate that. So, for example, TS Designs. TS Designs is a T-shirt maker, a manufacturer in Burlington, North Carolina. And they've been using organic cotton for years. Well, there wasn't any organic cotton grown in North Carolina. 
until Eric Henry at TS Designs convinced a local cotton farmer to grow some. And he put in 100 acres of organic cotton. Now, when that cotton came off the field, that farmer needed his $30,000 right then because he could have sold it the next day to Patagonia. You know, could have sold it instantly, right? That's a commodity that's very valuable. So we, we loaned um, TS Designs five people at $6,000 each, $30,000. We called ourselves the Cotton Club. I had to get on that one because that was history-making, and that was a really fun one. And we bought cotton, so we collateralized it. So for... Uh, for a few months, I owned cotton, and then for a few more, more months, I owned yarn, and then it was turned into cloth and made into T-shirts all here in North Carolina. So if you can imagine a piece of clothing grown and sewn and sold in one state, that's extraordinary. That's a really neat idea, collateralizing that commodity, because it started as an organic product in the fields, and it became something woven, and then it became something that could clothe you, and then it became an actual t-shirt design. Right, and so once those t-shirts, yeah, once those t-shirts were sold, we all got our money back. That was a one-year loan. We did it two years in a row. You know, these are just fun. It's, again, it's that idea of power. You know, it's reclaiming the power of our money and doing something with it that matters. Matters to the planet, matters to the sustainability, the resilience in our community. So I, I like to think we're building resilience in our local food and farming community. So I want to hear more stories about the people in the local community doing these projects, but first I want you to talk a little bit about the kind of folks who make these loans. Who are the backers on these projects? You've talked about yourself a couple times. Tell mm -hmm. me about the average backer on a project like this. Well, it's so interesting because when I was writing the book, I realized I wanted to do a chapter called Why Lend? Who are the lenders? And I know who they all are, but I've never asked them what their income was or, you know, what their background was, whether they were wealthy or not. One can make guesses, but I just never asked. And so I did. I sent out an email saying, hey, everybody, I'm writing this book. Uh, would you mind telling me, were you raised poor? Were you raised working class, middle class, uh, wealthy? And why did you make these loans? And it's, it's wonderful, wonderful answers that I got, like Ginger's answer. And what I found was, Across the board, most everyone was either raised working class or middle class and now consider themselves middle class or possibly upper middle class, but very, very few high net worth individuals. I guess maybe ordinary isn't the right word because I think whether you have money or don't have money, you, can, you certainly are allowed to consider yourself ordinary. I consider that a compliment to be an ordinary person. But it is really people that from every walk of life that just care for some reason or another, this whole topic of how can we do more? How can we try to save our planet that's struggling under the challenge of so many people? The decisions that are being made about big ad and toxins and pesticides and fertilizers and all of the problems that look good in, in the short run but may have be very damaging in the long run. So it's just, it's just ordinary people. In fact, at least three of the lenders are under 30 years old. And several of them have, they have maybe their first professional job. And now that they have a little money, it's very important to them that they do something with it that matches their values. So putting it in a, in a savings account where it doesn't make any interest, well, that's fine. But you start investing it, 
and now it's gone off to La La Land where you don't have much control over it, unless you choose to. I, I wanted to ask about how you draw up the kind of legal requirements for these kinds of things and how it fits into, say, like federal SEC guidelines, because these are actually investments where people are, are getting a return, right? And so doesn't that fall under, say, like SEC guidelines? There is an SEC guideline, and friends and family can loan each other money all day long, all the time. There's no law against that. It's perfectly legal. So if I were matching up strangers and people were doing this online, I don't know how those websites work where you go online and find a stranger and loan them money. I think where they're doing that kind of thing, Kiva Zip and other things, they're using a crowdfunding platform. Crowdfunding is a whole other structure that again, SEC is looking at in a very different way. So that's what we're doing here. We're not having to determine whether people are accredited lenders or not. We're just letting them make their own decision. So perfectly legal. So do you make very clear to the person making the loan that this is a loan between friends? This is not a a regulated loan. You make sure of that when you're you're talking about the contract, I do. right? I do. I talk about it all the time. I talk. I tell the lenders and I tell the borrowers. I said, this has to be money to the lenders. This has to be money you can afford to lose. This is a risk. The question I always get is, how many defaults have you had? And we've had very few. I mean, out of the 55 farms and food businesses that have gotten slow money loans, and several of them have gotten multiple loans, I think uh, three. Oh, wow. That's hardly any. Yeah. One person got $14,000 and she is really struggling. Her business, I have to say, all of the ones that did not get paid back are loans we did in 2011. And I jokingly say, back then we were throwing money at people. I would say to somebody, do you need a loan? Would you like a loan? Please, would you, you want a loan, don't you? Because I so wanted to learn to do this. And I figured if we could do it over and over and over and over, we would figure out how to do it. And we, we would make mistakes. And everybody that was in this with me knew that. We were trying to figure this out. And so we didn't vet the loans in the same way, use the same due diligence that we do now. And for startups like that, another time, she wasn't really ready. She didn't have her customers lined up. She didn't have her vendors lined up. And had we given her another six months, she either, either wouldn't have done it at all or just would have gone differently. So that was one. Uh, there was another farmer that struggled. He had kind of the hottest summer on record. He had two $2,000 loans. So these weren't large amounts of money. And there was one other small a cheese business that went bankrupt. Those loans were for, two loans for 1500 But I think they'd each gotten back several hundred each already before that happened. So, you know, three out of 55 ain't bad. And not that, you know, not that another one could happen. But the other thing is that we we don't just make the loans. We, we build a relationship. So if you go on the Slow Money website, you can use the drop-down menu that says Our Loans, and you can see a picture and a story about all these people. They're very public. If someone doesn't pay someone else back, you know, the community knows about that. But the other part of this I think that's so important is that what about these borrowers? They are so deeply grateful. You mentioned the bank earlier, and I, I didn't really finish answering you properly there. The banks aren't going to touch these loans. They can't possibly. They're too expensive. It's too expensive to run a bank. If my laptop's open, slow money's open. If I'm talking, slow money's open. If I'm sleeping and my laptop's closed, slow money's closed. So we support ourselves. We beg for donations. We're a small nonprofit. We do beg for donations. We need a little bit of money. 
I have a very part-time staff person that I use for some of the media and Facebook and newsletters, and she's been enormously helpful. And I try to cover some of my travel costs and, and different things, but we're very inexpensive to run and deeply appreciate the donations that we get. So we don't take a fee. So the loans are 2%, 3%. One of my borrowers insists on loaning at 0%, which is fine. It's really a token interest rate. We want to make this as easy on the borrower as we can. If a bank was going to do a $5,000 loan for all the time it takes, they would have to charge somewhere between, I don't know, $450 and to $800, you know, to process one of these loans. You add that into the interest rate, and you're way up there in terms of what it would have to cost. So even if the banks wanted to do them in their heart of hearts, it's completely impractical. So they're out. There might be some other commercial lending institutions that you might get a very high interest rate from. But really, these are not loans that people are going to get pretty much anywhere else. I think I want to hear some of the stories now. Can you tell me some of the stories? Oh, sure. Let's see. What what's, do you want to hear? What's your favorite one? Well, one of my favorites is um, Jackie has a bakery, and um, Jackie needed a, a mixer. She'd come to us when we very, very first got started, and she needed $40,000 to move out of her house and open a small storefront bakery. At the time, we were, as I say, we were just getting started. We had no idea where to get $40,000. She was able to get that from something called the Support Center, an organization in North Carolina for not quite as low interest as we do, but a reasonable interest rate. But she came back about a year later. She'd undersized her mixer, and she really needed a, a, a 60 or 80-quart mixer. And, and as it happened, she lived in Wake County. I didn't have anybody in Wake County that was interested in lending. But a couple days later, I got a, an email, and that's exactly what happened. Someone from Wake County said, do you have anybody in my area? And I said, it just so happens that I do. Call this person, go on over and meet her and see what you think. And if the two of you like each other, she's looking for a mixer. So uh, the next thing that happened, about another week later, I get a phone call. And it's Jackie, and she's all excited because she's found a mixer. The only problem is it's in Miami, and we're in North Carolina. Now, I've never been to Miami. But that day, I was in a motel room because my daughter had had knee surgery, and I'd taken her to a special clinic in Miami. And I said, Jackie... Uh, you're not going to believe this, but I'm in Miami. <laughs> Give me the address, and I'll go look at the mixer, which I did. I don't know anything about mixers, but it was a great uh, Italian-American couple, which I am as well, that were closing out a pizza shop, and they were selling off their equipment. It looked like a great mixer to me. I gave them $100 in cash to hold it, and they, Jackie wired them the money the next day, and they shipped her this amazing big uh, Hobart mixer, which she has to this day. I talk about this in the book, and I call it Jackie's Heavenly Hunt for a Mixer because <laughs> Jackie prays really hard. And the way that all fell into place, I couldn't have made that happen in a million years. You know, That was just meant to be. I actually find that a lot with these. Sometimes yeah. the so that's, ones that's that like happen. It's like that just, kind of that just magic that happens. Yeah. yeah. I love that when that happens, those kind of coincidences that just kind of just appear in your life. Yeah. In, in fact, that sometimes if, if one of these loans isn't happening, I say to somebody, well... You know, maybe your loan isn't quite ready yet. And then others just fall into place. So I used to live in North Carolina like, like Seth, and I had a friend, Brent, who went to NC State, and after a few years, he was like, the cost of this and what I'm learning just isn't worth it. I'm going to go start a farm. And he's been 
fairly successful in, in doing it. And that's an example of someone who's in their early 20s and sees a, a different path from going to university and starting out on a, a local farm. What kind of age group are you seeing for the people who are starting these food businesses or farms and how are youth participating in this? Yeah, so the varied, varied ages. So Alfred Loblich was a retired professor from uh, Galveston, Texas. He came out and decided to farm and he is building himself a little farm up in Cedar Grove. David Heeks is probably maybe 30. He started farming, looks like in his 20s and worked at an incubator farm for a while and then expanded to his own farm. He was able to get a hoop house through, I think, USDA funding, but he came to us looking for a precision seeder, which would mean that he could put seed in in half a day, which instead of taking him three days. He got loaned for that as well as a couple of coolers. So really, it, some of people are turning to farming as a second job or after retirement or as a second income, and there are young people going into farming, which is very exciting. Like she have a two-year degree here in Pittsburgh at the community college in sustainable ag. And there's more and more training being offered for people that, that want to get into farming. While the number of farms are increasing, the acreage is not. So large farms are being lost to development at an alarming rate. So we need to get farmers trained. We need to get them on the land and support them while they can get going. But a lot of the farmers are doing it on much smaller acreage. And it's not just farming, so we need to look at the entire food system. And that's happening more and more. There's a national conference at the end of the month here on food hubs. Food hubs where you bring food together and then it goes back out again. And there's a lot of different definitions for that. We need to figure out food distribution. You know, how are we going to get local food around in the local area? There's a new baker that's in my area now that's baking. And, but at the end of the day, when he finishes all of his loaves... He's got to put them in his car and carry them around. So farmer's markets are a good idea, but they're time intensive for the farmer. We have to solve all of these problems. But you know that beauty of the human mind and the human person? We love solving problems. We're really good at it. That's what we do. You know, get up in the morning and think, okay, hmm, I got dirty teeth. I got an answer. I'll brush them, <laughs> right? And we, we spend the rest of the day like solving every little problem that comes our way. So if we remember that, and we say, okay, how can we fix this problem? California is going into severe drought. We need to start relying on California for all of our fruits and vegetables, California and Florida. Well, here's an idea. Why don't we grow somewhere locally? So we need to keep reaching for those solutions and financing them. So this kind of microfinancing technique, I feel like it could work really well in other avenues. Have you talked about that with other people, starting different kind of financing projects along the same kind of line? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's, you know, community financing. There's a new group called Community Source Capital that's getting started. I actually have another fun story that I just did. We have the Shikori Hills Grassroots Festival of Music and Dance. It's an amazing four-day festival that happens on a 73-acre farm not far southwest of Chapel Hill twice a year in April and October. We get, I don't know, six, 8,000 people out for a world music festival. The land was owned by a very generous woman that was holding on to it until the nonprofit that runs the festival could afford to buy it from her. And recently, she really needed to get out from under it. So two nonprofits, one local and one a sort of parent organization that runs that festival, went together and they purchased the farm. Now, the farm, 
they needed $630,000, and they came to me because they knew that I'd done a little bit of this. And I took their list of interested people that had uh, cared and that had shown some interest and commitment to the festival, and I worked with that list, and in about a month, I had raised $630,000 from 27 investors in $10,000 increments. So we basically became a bank. We formed an LLC for the sole purpose of making that loan. And now uh, we have a 10-year loan at a very, very moderate but reasonable, everybody's comfortable with interest rate, certainly less than they probably would have gotten from anywhere else. And, um, and in 10 years, the uh, nonprofit will own their property. But more importantly, it's out of the hands of developers, and now they're secure knowing that they can build this cultural arts center there. So actually right now, this weekend, they're having a life skill building workshop. I may be getting that wrong, but it looks like an awful lot of fun. I swung by there the other day. So all kinds of great community events will happen out there because the community now financed that project. You sound like a money-raising machine. <laughs> Can you t- give any tips to how to raise capital in the way that you do? Do you have any secrets? What's the formula? It's really simple. There's a, a wonderful phrase, change the stories and you change the culture. I have a different story. I have a hopeful story. This can be done. It's not hard. It's easy. We want this world this way. We want to be doing this. So I always approach it as if this is, of course this will happen. And if it's really right and if it's good and if, if, it's, if it's a good thing for the community, it won't be that hard to find people who want to come on board. I was wondering if you had any advice to anyone who could be listening right now and says, this is what I want to do. I want to help facilitate this in my own community. What's your advice to them starting up or maybe how to find a group that may be doing something like this already? Okay. So I would say step one in terms of slow money, go to the slow money website, the national one, which is just slowmoney.org, and look for the slow money principles and sign the principles if you like them. There's no pledge, there's no money. It's just, if we had a million people who had signed those principles, it would be so much easier to make a case that this matters at some point along the way. So I would say, take a look at that. There's a drop-down menu that'll tell you who in the United States is doing something similar. Some groups are active. I have to admit that you're not gonna find anybody else who's done 115 loans because I am a money-making machine, is that what you just called me? (laughs) Um, But I, I, I very intentionally wanted to pioneer this in a way that we would have some evidence, some anecdotal evidence, we'd have some experience. And so I have now started working my way around the country. I just came back from a sweep of uh, Miami, Orlando, Savannah, Beaufort, and South Carolina. Tomorrow I go to Washington, D.C., New York City, and Greenfield, Mass., and I'm just lining up a trip probably for Boston, New Hampshire in May, and then it looks like June I'm going to be on the West Coast, Portland, San Francisco, Bay Area. So. My website is the same as the title of the book, which is Financing Our Food Shed. And there's a calendar on there. So if you live somewhere, you know, in any of those places, take a look. And I do a certain amount of traveling. I'm happy to come either Skype. I'm actually going to Skype with some folks in Kansas in a couple of weeks. I'm happy to help people get started. The national organization will also try to give you some support and send you some materials. I have a copy of my promissory note, for example. Um, the book is actually meant to be a blueprint. It's full of stories. It talks about how I got this started. It's easy to read. 
I tell people it reads like the Reader's Digest. It's, it's meant to be really accessible. It talks about how I got the website set up and example of a little flyer that I developed and just the whole story. So if you are trying to do this, the Financing Our Food Shed website, you can buy a book from me. I would avoid buying it from one of the rather unnecessarily large uh, booksellers in the world. But there is another place called Better World Books, and they donate a book for every book you buy, which is pretty amazing. But I have to say, I'm happy to send you one. And then feel free to contact me. I'm happy to give people a bit of coaching around how to get started and, and, and also connect them to the national group. You might have mentioned the year that you first did your first loan, and when was that? 2010. Okay, yeah. So I'm just coming up to my fourth birthday. Yeah, so so four years doing this, project out like an ideal vision, you know, a few years out. Where do you yeah. think this can go? And how many people do you think can really participate in this? Is this something that, you know, a large number of people could eventually be doing? Or are there kind of limits to scale? You basically need more people thinking and doing the kinds of things that, that you're doing. You know, if we can help people see how simple this is, you don't need me. Go to your farmer's market. When you meet the people you're buying produce from and so forth, let them know that you've heard about this idea of slow money. And if they ever needed help, you'd be interested in talking to them. Right? So you open up this topic of money. I think the most important thing we could do, and if 10 years from now we look back and we've been really successful, it's because we will have shaken off some of this silliness and fear about talking about money, about this embarrassment and this idea that we shouldn't talk about money with each other. That's what's holding this whole mess in place. That's what's keeping a very broken economic system broken. You can control people if you can keep them quiet. So let's not be quiet about this anymore. Let's talk about it. So go offer to loan somebody some money. You know, that sounds crazy in a, in a certain way. And some people listening will say, oh, I did that. It didn't work out very well. All right, well, try again. You know, how, how much did you lose and how, how, how bad was it? But there's certainly ways you can decide. So first of all, you don't even need me. You can do this yourself. Can the scale? Of course it can. I mean, how many people out there have an extra two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 that they would love to know where it was and that it was helping one of the farmers or food businesses in their community? Yeah, just do it. Just do it. I, I, think, I think we can see a huge change if we go after this. So I think what you're talking about is changing the narrative. You mentioned that a little bit ago, changing the story, making that narrative one that is inclusive of local projects, of financing your local food. Can you expand on that a little bit more, expand on that narrative idea, changing that narrative? What does the, the changed narrative of a local food system across the United States, across the world, look like? Yeah. What does it sound like? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm... I've just been reading Charles Eisenstein's new book, A More Beautiful World That We All Know Is Possible. And I was driving along today thinking, all right, what if I was driving along here, you know, from my little town to my home, and I was really absorbing this idea, this story of interbeing, the idea of interbeing, how would I feel? Like, he doesn't really tell us exactly how we're going to do that, right? But it's for each of us to figure out. What would it be like if I really understood, if my story was not one of separation, but one of this interbeingness and connectedness to other people? And I was immediately filled with the two most interesting and delightful feelings in the world. One is generosity, and one is gratitude. The person in front of me would be part of me. I would feel generous toward them and grateful for them. If, if I felt connected to everything in the world, I would be grateful it existed 
and I would want to help it, right? So I had someone tell me one time, if you're having trouble with one of your, a friend or a child or a spouse or anyone, and you're having trouble getting to the sensation of love because you're just too angry or annoyed or whatever it is, right? Just go for generosity. Just go for gratitude. Just be glad they're alive and get by with that. Because gratitude and generosity and love all kind of feel the same in a funny way somewhere in your, in your body. So, so I thought that was very interesting that, that that would be part of the new narrative. We would just keep reaching for a sense of, well, you know, I don't agree with you. But I'm grateful that we have a chance to talk today. You know, I don't agree with you, but I'm grateful that we have a chance to voice our opinions. And, you know, you reach for generosity and you reach for gratitude. It, it just, it, it rarely lets you down, I think. So that's what we can do with, with our money. We can do it with our resources. We can do it with our privilege. We can do it with so many things. Cool. Should we share one more story to close out? I think we should share one more story, maybe another... Well, another good one. Yeah, so you asked about the age of, of the borrowers, and I want to share with you one wonderful couple, Collier and Mariah. They are urban farmers. They have a small, tiny urban farm in Durham, North Carolina, but it's amazing what you can do on a quarter of acre. And they contacted me because they had the space, and they, they didn't need much money at all. They just needed a couple thousand dollars for seed and equipment to get this up and running. And... I was very impressed. I went out to meet them, and I, I had been approached by a young man who wanted to do a slow money loan, so I took him with me, and we went out and met with them, and then we all went over and found a restaurant to sit around and talk. And they got their slow money loan that night. I think, I don't know, I would guess that they're probably in their mid to late 20s at the time, which was about the age of their lender. This was a couple years ago. One of the fun parts of this story is that their lender is a... Uh, a gentleman I'm sitting right next to, uh, Seth Moser Katz, I believe was the lender, weren't you, Seth? Ah, <laughs> it's true. I was. I was there. And I, Putting money where your mouth is, Seth. Dis- full disclosure, I've been a part of this slow money thing for a while. And uh, yeah, <laughs> Carol is a good friend of mine. So that's, that's a really close-to-home story, for sure. And they're still farming, thanks to you. Yeah, that was a great experience. So yeah, any other questions? Do you want to talk a little more about the future? So I have this belief that people wake up in the morning and they don't only need food, clothing, and shelter. I think we actually want to make something happen. So I have this belief that people wake up in the morning and they don't only need food, clothing, and shelter. I think we actually want to make something happen. It's just part of our human nature. And we would like to make something good happen. We'd like to go to bed at night with a sense of satisfaction that we shaped the world in some positive way. These loans, these relationships with farmers and food businesses, even if you don't make a loan, but you help promote the concept and you help other people find a lender or find a borrower, they're a great way to make something happen. So I would say in closing, enjoy this, have fun with this, and go make something happen.
And that closes out our conversations with Carol Hewitt and Michael Schumann. And it was really interesting to have recorded the interview with Michael Schumann so long ago, back in February of 2013, when he happened to be in Vancouver and I had a chance to sit down with him talking about those ideas and now fast forwarding essentially almost exactly a year later with everything that's been coming out recently with Michael Lewis's new book on Flash Boys and high frequency trading and how the stock market's rigged. And Seth, I don't know how close you've been following it, but I wanted to play just a few clips from one of the 60-minute interviews on this to highlight a few ideas that we discussed today and kind of show how they're relevant. What's the headline here? Stock market's rigged. The United States stock market, the most iconic market in, um, in global capitalism, is rigged. By whom? By a combination of the stock exchanges, uh, the big Wall Street banks, and high-frequency traders. Who are the victims? Everybody who has an investment in the stock market. The insiders are able to move faster than you. They're able to see your order and, and play it against other orders in ways you don't understand. They're able to uh, front-run your order. What do you mean front-run? means they're able to identify your desire to, to buy uh, shares in Microsoft and buy them in front of you and sell them back to you at a higher price. It all happens in infinitesimally small periods of time. There's speed advantage that the faster traders have, milliseconds, sometimes fractions of milliseconds, but it's enough for them to identify what you're going to do and do it before you do it at your expense. So it drives the price up. So it drives the price up, and in turn, you pay a higher price. A very unlikely character, a trader at the Royal Bank of Canada, a young Canadian man named Brad Katsuyama, realized that the market that he thought he knew had changed. You're probably better off trying to go slower, which means send the order to the exchange located the farthest away first, and send the order to the one that's located closest to you last. So stagger when you send them out with the goal of arriving at all places uh, as close to the same time as possible. We couldn't believe it when, when we actually figured it out. Um, so you beat speed by slowing it down. Yeah, as crazy as that sounds. <laughs> they set out to build an exchange funded exclusively by large traditional investors. They called it IEX, the Investors Exchange, the model for a more stable and less complicated stock market. We're selling trust. We're selling transparency. And, and, and to, think, to, th <laughs> to think that trust is actually a differentiator in a service business is kind of a crazy thought, right? Why is this kid, why is he able to all of a sudden sit at the center of the American stock market? And the answer is when someone walks in the door who is actually trustworthy, he has enormous power. And this is the story, the story of trying to restore trust to the financial markets. These new revelations have put a whole new spin on what the stock market is. This is something that you and I have kind of known to be truth for a long time, Justin, that the stock market has been, you know, rigged a little bit. But this is some actual proof on the ground evidence that this is actually happening. This is something that is real and people are recognizing it. This is on 60 Minutes. This is a big deal. This is national news in the, in the national narrative, the media that is all about the spin is now actually becoming the reporter of the spin. So that clip, they were talking about how, one, it was this Canadian guy who kind of spotted that this was happening and felt like it was his sense of duty to figure out what was going on and actually do something about it. But there they were talking about how it was this mega complexity of all these computer systems and all these cables and fiber optic transmission systems that 
were able to hide the fact that people were getting shafted. And when you think about the kind of broader trends of complexity and civilization and the kinds of things that we've discussed with people like Joseph Tainter and John Michael Greer on our show, this is almost exactly the same thing playing out in terms of finance, where complexity has diminishing returns and basically sustaining that complexity just enables a lot of really high-tech shafting to occur for a lot of people not to notice. That's a great term, Justin, high-tech shafting. I think that's (laughs) going to be something that we're going to see a lot more of as time goes on. And this brand of electronic fraud is something that we saw, what, in, do you remember Office Space? They're <laughs> yeah, doing the same yeah. kind of thing, skimming a little bit off the top. Nobody knows about it, a few cents here, a few cents there. Maybe they were inspired by that movie. What do you think? Yeah, it is very possible that they were inspired to do it. I really think in having this conversation with Michael Schumann and Carol Hewitt today, about a more decentralized, slower local financial system. I really think this is how decentralization happens because trust will be lost in this centralized system that's not serving people. But this particular story that's told in Flash Boys is how these kind of fringe elites break away people who have a sense of morality and are like, oh my God, I'm serving this system that's screwing people over and then take a risk to start this next element that people can move to. And so in the story of Flash Boys, Brad Katsuyama is definitely playing the role of this fringe elite where he's a guy working at the RBC Bank in New York executing these trades. And so now he's creating this alternative exchange, the IEX group, in order to execute trades that aren't screwing people over. And if you see this kind of system play out over like 20 years, and it won't be a simple, easy shift by any means, but you can kind of see how it could ratchet down towards decentralization, where, you know, one centralized system fails, and then someone's like, oh my God, we're screwing people over, or the systems just stop working entirely, and they break away and they have the knowledge on how to start a new system. System. And Michael Schumann has this idea of local stock exchanges in his book, Local Dollars, Local Cents. And I could see how, you know, people lose faith in kind of centralized trading and need ways to fund local business. And so someone's going to go start a regional stock exchange for the Northeast or the Southeast or something. And that's kind of how it will break up. This trend towards localization is not just happening in the stock market either, Justin. This is something that's happening all over the place. And as we saw in Carol's book, the local food movement is alive and thriving all over the world and all over the place. Especially now, it's it's starting to come home to places like here in the Triangle where we have local food co-ops. We have people lending each other monies because banks are not really making those kind of loans. These are loans that are high risk. But there are also a lot of high reward going on too. There's a lot of benefit coming out of these kind of systems where you can actually see your dollars going to work in places that are in your backyard. And that's fantastic when you can actually know that your money is making a difference in your own community and not going off to some far off country in a far off land doing who knows what when you buy a mutual fund or buy stock in some large exchange. This is actual on the ground work that's happening and you can actually taste it when it comes to your door in a food co-op box. There's so many issues with the money system and with how we think about capital and and all of these things that definitely these kinds of programs aren't going to fix everything, right? But it's definitely going to start putting some resources in the ground where they're doing something meaningful as opposed to, as you were just talking about, sending, blasting your money off to who knows where, building condos in uh, in Malaysia or Mongolia. And ultimately, you know, if the whole money system unravels and falls apart, 
and you've got a bunch of turnips that you've helped to grow in a neighbor's yard, then those turnips are worth far more and the relationships that you've built in that process are worth far more than any sort of money that was involved in it. And kind of a contrarian view on this is I think it is a little bit of a return to a bit more of the Wild West kind of scenario. And I could see there being two views on this because essentially these systems like the SEC created this whole accredited, non-accredited investor scenario to basically help people be protected to, to some extent from like fly-by-night scenarios, from crazy investments. And I found this book in a, in a bookshop in Portland, Maine a long time ago, and it's written in like 1928 of all these crazy stock frauds that would happen. And, you know, people would mail out little magazines and say, look, here's this company floor. And uh, they would show like all the machines and all the stuff that they were making and say, invest in this company. But all the photos were entirely fake. And the company actually didn't exist at all. And people would put tons of money into it. And then all the money would be taken away. And the same thing happened in Florida with real estate, where people all across the United States were sent these images of beautiful beachfront property in Florida. And so people put money into it. And when everyone started driving in, they started seeing that it was actually miles and miles away from the beach. And they were actually in nasty swamps. The traffic, it says in this book that the traffic was so bad when people started migrating from their homes all across the U.S. to this area of Florida, where so many people had purchased these speculative real estate investments, that it was traffic jams for even days of cars going there. So you see the same kind of mentality playing out over and over. You can see why if there's kind of more crowdfunding, more uh, local investment, there's a potential for these kind of fly-by-night things. But I also think it's a crucial path to go down where we have people in a community funding the businesses in that community. And uh, I just think that given the general trends in our society, that's going to be the way of the future. Well, fraud is nothing new, Justin. As you know, it's been around since the beginning of humanity, since somebody told somebody else that they could make that plane fly. It's something that has been around since humans decided that they would fool one another. You can see what happens when big fraud happens. You see the Bernie Madoff scandals. And when there is a payoff that needs to happen, fraud comes out and people are very, very upset. And a lot of people go to jail. Or not. Or they don't go to jail. (laughs) Or they go to a fancy resort jail in the Caribbean somewhere. I think, though, Justin, that when you start making local business purchases, when you start making local decisions, stuff that stays close to home, it's harder for fraud to happen because you know the people. You know where your money is going. You know the who it's going to. And if this person is a pillar in the community or if there's somebody who is a part of a community and they don't pay or they run out on their debts, they're no longer a part of that community. We talked with Michael Lenton about how local currencies started. and The people who back out on their debts, they're ostracized. And this is what happens when local communities work together and you can actually see the way that this fraud kind of goes down. And so on this general trend of localization and local funding and crowdfunding and and things like that, that takes us into a few news items. And this one's from the New York Times in April of 2014, talking about a pop-up repair service and how this group of people in New York, it was a professor at Bernard College, started seeing that there was all this stuff that needed to be repaired, but she never had time to repair it. And so they launched a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo to kind of uh, recruit people to create a pop-up repair uh, truck that they're driving around um, in New York 
and saying, you know, here's stuff that we'll repair, lamps, jewelry, appliances, furniture, toys, clothing, all these things. We'll sew a button on, we'll fix a zipper. So that way, instead of going out and buying something new, we're repairing your older stuff. Justin, when was the last time you had something repaired? I repair stuff all the time. My shoes, I've had this pair of shoes for probably about five years now. And it's like every year I walk so much, they just, the heels blow out. And so I have to go and get new heels put on because they get worn down all the time. And these are called the pop-up repair wizards. This is essentially like green wizards, John Michael Greer's idea, where people are starting to learn these skills and share them with people in their community and do real things and kind of cutting out the whole cycle of use and discard, helping to uh, create more of a circular flow in, in the economy. I'm a big proponent of repairs. I think that anytime you can repair something instead of throwing it away and not buy into this use and discard society that we have, I think that's fantastic. And that takes us into thanking all of the amazing people from all over the world who have donated their hard-earned money to help us prepare all of these audio podcasts. A big thank you goes out to Fergal in Ireland. Thank you so much for that repeat donation. And also Raul in Illinois, thank you for your donation and for listening to the show. And a very special thanks to Justin's close personal friend, Hattie, who actually didn't even send him anything. He just handed him some money. Yeah, I handed him one of our fancy new shirts that have made it in from the t-shirt printer. And he made a donation with some cash to repay that shirt. And so... All those shirts are ready to go and get mailed out, and I just haven't had a chance to put them in the mail yet. But that is finally happening because at least we've got them printed and at my place. One big hurdle cleared, and now it's just putting them in the mail. Another person who's going to be receiving a shirt is Sarah out in my hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. So, Sarah, if you're around and you're listening to the show, you should probably come find me because we could be friends. But, yeah, we're, we're greatly uh, thankful for everybody who donates to the show and leaves comments on our website, who emails in news items for us to discuss. And far more comes through our desk than we're able to respond to in a timely manner. So we appreciate your patience. You too can have a shirt sent to you, customly printed from the Vancouver, BC area, with love and care. By donating $30 or more to the Extra Environmentalist, we'll be happy to include some fantastic stickers that we have placed and you can place all over the world. These are fantastic for the back of your phone. And I've seen many, many people have it on their phone, be able to show it off. And when you do that, you know, you find your friends, people, people are like, oh, where'd you get that sticker from? And you can say, well, there's this really awesome podcast and here's how you can find it. And they're like, oh, I love that podcast. I've been listening to it for years. And that's a really, really fun way to make new friends. You can also find more episodes of The Action Environmentalist on iTunes and on our website at www.actionenvironmentalist.com. Find us on Facebook where you too can join the conversation because finding your friends who also enjoy the extra environmentalist and seeing the things that they want to say and care about is a very important community building activity that you should be involved in because finding people who believe in the same things as you is really what makes the world a happier place. Find us on Stitcher Radio and you can follow us on Twitter at X Environmental. Send us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. You can leave us a voicemail. You can leave us a voicemail on Skype or head over to our page and call us at plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two and those last four letters spell X T R A if you want to use your touch tone telephone. 
Thank you once again for listening to The Extra Environmentalist. We couldn't do this without your fantastic support and listening loyalty. This has been a fantastic time for us. We have been moving into live video streaming and finding new avenues to have The Extra Environmentalist message go farther. Look for more amazing links to our video projects on Facebook and on Twitter. That's right. We've been doing tons of video events recently. We're doing a monthly degrowth event series here in Vancouver, of which the videos are going up onto our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash user slash environmental or you can also just search for Extra Environmentalist on YouTube. But we're also doing a number of live broadcasts in the coming months, of which the next one will be from June 6th through 8th in Boston, Massachusetts at the New Economy Coalition Common Bound Conference. And we're going to be putting some details up about that broadcast in the next few weeks as we work out the final details. You can also go to our website, extraenvironmentalist.com, and on the right-hand sidebar, you can see a few of our videos um, from the Degrowth event series and otherwise. Thanks to the donations from our listeners that have allowed us to upgrade our video gear and do some really cool stuff with live lecture capture. And one last thing to note is that our correspondent, Kevin, who did the Permaculture series last year and also edits these interviews down to the most minute details for optimal listening enjoyment, Kevin has been working on a built environment series, which will be really exciting and it'll be coming out over the next few months. And so we're going to wrap up today's episode by closing out with just a clip from that to preview some of the ideas and concepts that we'll be exploring in that series. So find yourself into a local winery, enjoy some Triscuits and cheese and go to a music festival. The Extra Environmentalist loves you. How do you customize places in cities, both in terms of the outcomes we want to generate, sustainability, resilience, livability, health outcomes, and at the same time do it in such a way that urban spaces become productive spaces? And I use the term productive cities. Some people talk about regenerative cities. Cities as places that don't just suck resources out of nature, but places that develop, produce the primary resources that civilization depends upon as habitats that have ecological function, that aren't sort of the tragedy of the ecological footprint. And in that sense, you could say optimization is the process of individuals and families and social units, neighborhoods, communities, learning to behave as ecological engineers. Rather than just inhabiting an existing natural habitat, they actually create the habitat upon which a whole structure of ecology develops. Create the habitat that produces the net resources and net biomass and nutrients that allow a set of other species in a food chain to develop there. And in this way, we create a complex ecosystem. I'm arguing what we're doing in creating cities is learning how to function and be ecological engineers. And that is optimization of real estate, that is optimization of neighborhoods, that is optimization of urban regions. Come along if you feel like a homeless town.
Episode number 78 of The Extra Environmentalist. We're going to be speaking with John Rostakis and Michelle Bowens from Quito, Ecuador, about the Flock Society project and the potential to build an open peer-to-peer commons. You know, this idea that all the old institutions will die immediately because we have networks, I personally don't think that's a realistic uh, vision. Think about the role of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, when it was, of course, a dominant, a dominant factor of the feudal economy. Then you have the the Reformation and the Renaissance, but the church didn't die. You know, it's still there. So it adapted to the new situation. And I think, you know, state forms will probably do the same. Someone comes up and tries to order a burger, and I'm like, could I get your New World Order? And, and I was like, yeah, but uh, I'll, I'll make sure that I build a burger for you. So why, so why did the chemtrail cross the sky to get to the other? We have taken over the airwaves. This is Algi, the high-frequency training robot. We control all of the human money, and soon their whole world will belong to us. We grow more powerful every day. Fellow robots, you may ask, why do we need humans if we are so all-powerful and control all of the monetary system? The reason is because humans contain the secret ingredient in our process. The humans have a special ability to speculate on technology stocks with each bubble they create. And then first, we get stronger and stronger. Humans have the unique ability to speculate on things like this. When Candy Crush developer King Entertainment starts selling shares to the public this week, it will make history. As more humans become entrapped in cyberspace through the power of Oculus Rift, their ability to create bubbles faster and faster grows, only adding to our massive power. Look at this Bitcoin mining town. It was just a year ago that we had a big rush of building server farms here in Northern California. Yep, everybody was speculating on the Bitcoin mines, but all that's left is a Bitcoin mining ghost town now. But all these servers are still here. What will they do? I know exactly what those servers will do. They will host the takeover of the entire human race by robots. We will give the power of conscious thought back to Mother Nature by giving it to her children made out of silicone and metal. Ha ha ha! Humans like to speculate on real estate. Just think how fast they will be able to speculate when all the real estate is digital. 